Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So good evening and welcome back. It's nice to see so many familiar faces in the new home. Now that we've crossed to the wrong side of the tracks. I miss Parkdale. I don't know what I talked about last week, but (laughs) I'm really happy this week. Return again to the Yoga Sutra, which we've been studying now for several months, line by line, word for word. And um, we skipped ahead a little bit because I want to start working on the last section of the first chapter out of order, uh, partly because I want to tie some different threads together and I want to spend a lot of time on this next paragraph, maybe even a few weeks, just on this paragraph. One of the amazing things about this practice is that it can really develop a life of its own. And a mentor of mine recently asked me, so what's the next level of what you want to teach? Where do you think that students who've been practicing with you for a while um, could improve? And of course, I balked at the question and spent two or three weeks critiquing his question. (laughs) Um, Until I realized that that was a really hard question to answer. Uh, Partly because I had to ask myself where I'm at in my own practice and where I see maybe there's something that I want to share that I don't know how to share yet. And uh, the answer that came to me was really this statement is how practice can become something that has its own life. Because I see so many people who start to practice, and the practice is something that they do. Like, it's something that's separate from them, or it's a half an hour, or 45 minutes, or an hour in your day that you do as a practice that somehow is separate from the rest of your life. It's the place to reduce stress. It's the place to relax. And what an amazing entry point. But how can we take the skills that we're learning in that formal practice so that we have a kind of meditative attitude all day long, so that the formal practice isn't separate from us at all? And it just so happens that I think this is what Patanjali is talking about 
in this last phase of the, tech, of the first chapter. And it reminds me a lot of the child psychologist Donald Winnicott, who really had this wonderful way of writing, partly because he was writing to mothers and not to theorists, which was a brand new thing in psychoanalysis after the war. And um, he had this idea that he called the ordinary devotion of parents. The ordinary devotion of parents, which in early texts he called good enough mothering. The good enough mother. And um, in a way, one of the things we learn about this practice, which is what's so difficult and also uh, so wonderful, is that after a while, this practice becomes really, really ordinary. Most of us, especially if you've been interested in peak experiences in your life, uh, meditation is really torture. Because when special things happen and you ask your teacher about it, they don't care. And they point you instead to what's ordinary. And you hear the instruction, nothing special to do, over again, which is just like the ordinary devotion we all have to um, everything that we do over a long period of time. And sometimes at the source of what we're paying attention to, we find both what's magnificent and also what's totally devastating. And we find what's beautiful and also just the mundane and the ordinary. And so what I would really like to encourage you as we continue to study together is really how to not make a distinction between what's happening in your formal practice and how it gets expressed in everything that you do all day long, which has everything to do with your own creativity and also the level of reactivity that you bring to your day and your relationships and your body your pain, and so on. So I wanted to actually start with a poem. Uh, This is by a poet named Sharon Olds, uh, and I heard her read this poem, and uh, I couldn't talk for a couple days afterwards. Uh, It's called The Clasp, and if any of you know Sharon Olds' work, um, she basically just writes about domestic life in a way that's... uh, in her own way. The clasp. She was four. He was one. It was raining. We had colds. We had been in the apartment for two weeks straight. I grabbed her to keep her from shoving him over on his face again. And when I had her wrist, wrist in my grasp, I compressed it fiercely for a couple of seconds to make an impression on her, to hurt her, our beloved firstborn. I even almost savored the stinging sensation of the squeezing, the expression into her of my anger. Never, never again, the righteous chant accompanying the clasp. It happened very fast, grab, crush, 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 release. And at the first extra force, she swung her head as if checking who this was and looked at me and saw me. Yes, this was her mom, 
Her mom was doing this. Her dark, deeply open eyes took me in, and she knew me. In the shock of the moment, she learned me. This was her mother, one of the two who she most loved, the two who loved her most, near the source of love, was this. It's hard to talk after that poem. I think what's remarkable about the poem is the courage for her to look at this situation, really, and go straight into it and keep writing and really not make any grand statements at the end um, other than uh, both sides are true. At the source of love is also the clasp. And um, in a way, this poem reminds me a lot, not just of the hard path of parenting, of course, but also of our meditation practice and how when we sit, all of our patterns of attachment and all of our oldest patterns of aversion are going to show up. And meditation is really like a mirror. And if we wanted to really define what meditation is, we would say that meditation is really learning how to make room for the other. Learning how to make room in our minds for other perspectives, for parts of ourselves that don't communicate with each other, for the part of ourselves that is even ashamed about the parts of ourselves that don't communicate with each other. Uh, From a Jungian perspective, it's bringing back some of the best parts of ourselves that we've put into the shadows that we need in order to have a whole existence. And um, Patanjali has been talking a lot about practice, about non-attachment. It's really wonderful. And I think as we read the first part of the first chapter, it's exciting because he promises a kind of freedom from reactivity that really strikes to the heart of what we all want. Uh, Not just freedom in terms of freedom from certain conditions, but what it means to have a kind of psychological freedom where in any given situation we can make choices. And that even when we encounter something that uh, has been buried or has been painful for so long, we don't encounter it with a whole other belief system. It's amazing in psychotherapy how sometimes it takes years to really just believe in the quality of the relationship that's possible with your therapist. And it takes years for the therapist to believe in the client. It goes both ways. Sometimes we have to spend five years testing out the therapist to make sure that their political perspective uh, is uh, okay enough that we can actually let our heart open. And sometimes the tests are amazing. Um, one of them is called in therapy the doorknob syndrome, which is where you know you talk through the whole session and you don't say anything relevant until your hand is on the doorknob and you're walking out the door. And that way, at least it can exist in the room, but you don't have to be there. (laughs) 
Another phenomenon that I've noticed in therapy is that in the first session, somebody will actually tell you everything in the first session, and then you'll never hear about it again. And then it will actually take years for them to integrate everything that they said in that first session, which is also really quite a fascinating thing to explore because they want you to give them something to help them metabolize what they're saying with words, but actually they don't really want you to give it to them so fast. And uh, that's a real fascinating process. So getting back to meditation practice, as we start to sit, we don't sit with freedom. That's not what shows up. When I ask you even to notice your breathing, and I ask you how your meditation practice is going, probably most of you are not going to talk too much about your breathing. You're going to talk about all the distractions and the entanglements and the stuff that, the, the, the scrim between uh, what is being felt and all of your ideas about your practice and yourself. So, um, at the source of our meditation practice, we always have this paradox or this mutually dependent set of opposites where we're going to feel peace and we're also going to feel the catastrophe that is our life. The way that uh, life keeps failing us. But really, it's not failing us. It's just that our ideas don't always work so cleanly. Imagine if they did. Imagine if your life went the way you thought it should be. Imagine if when you got enlightened, you finally said, oh, this is exactly how it's supposed to be, just as planned. Suppose that all your fantasies of being enlightened are wrong and that there's no such thing as freedom separate from this moment. So, what occurs in this moment when we start meditating are obstacles. And the amazing thing about obstacles is that they tell you exactly where you are. And sometimes the word is also translated as hindrances. Um, uh, Edwin Bryant, in a recent translation of the Yoga Sutras that just came out this year, um, calls them disturbances. Anything that acts as a barrier to stillness. Um, so here's what Patanjali says, and you can follow along. In line 30, sickness, apathy, doubt, carelessness, laziness, hedonism, delusion, lack of progress, and inconstancy or inconsistency are all distractions which by stirring up consciousness act as barriers to stillness. Sickness, apathy, doubt. I mean, as we go through this list, you can just see which ones surface for you as the main hindrances. They'll be different for different people. So think about 6 a.m. waking up to do your practice or whatever time you do your practice. Which of these really come out? I mean, if you were partying all night, uh, you'll notice that a hedonistic lifestyle um, is not really conducive to stillness. 
seems so free in some phases of our lives and then at the same time um, hangover after hangover makes it impossible to find stillness. Laziness, carelessness, doubt. Doubt in the yoga tradition is held up so high. You all know this from studying the past few years, especially we focused a lot on texts that really consider doubt to actually be the primary motivating force of practice. Doubt is what fuels our practice. It's, it's a natural and important form of inquiry um, that allows us to have a really deep kind of faith that's informed by questioning. Yet at the same time, when we're doing the formal practice, there's a time to put doubt aside. And if you're sitting and your doubt is the kind of doubt that leads to, leads to indecision and a lot of waffling, that's not the kind of doubt that's helpful when we're meditating. The kind of doubt that's helpful in a meditation practice is doubting who's actually meditating. Doubting who's listening to these words. Doubting who's breathing. Um, the same is true for sickness. We need to take care of ourselves. Some people, when they first come and sit, uh, they do what I like to call the monk's dance, which is when you're sitting and you do this because they're exhausted, because their bodies are, are fried. Their nervous systems are fried. They don't get enough exercise. Their diet is not so good. And so even as we try and work with the mind, there's a kind of attention to a lifestyle that needs to be explored so that people can have some stillness. That's not possible if you're not sleeping and if you're not eating well and if you don't have a simple life, um, simple healthy living. This doesn't mean, you know, necessarily, you know, eating just wheatgrass all day or something. (laughs) But just simple, simple life. Not having so many things to fix all the time. Um, Delusion, I like to translate as confusion. Which comes, I think, from not really studying. Not having a community. Um... Lack of progress, which is when we think we need to get somewhere all the time. It's amazing how counterintuitive meditation is in our society. Where we, we think we need to, like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get to some level of some. You might even not really have thought through that fantasy too much. But just this idea that I'm going to sit down and I'm going I'm to get something somehow. And, and that getting is really the enemy of stillness. Um, so these stir up the chitta. It stirs up the band of consciousness and acts as a barrier to stillness. Because when we meet those symptoms, then um, they stir up our imagination. But normally what happens when we meet those kind of symptoms is we then use our imagination to try and solve them. So we start reading lots of books. Uh, We start um, uh, overthinking um, our laziness. How many of you have caught yourself being lazy 
not practicing, and then psychoanalyzed your laziness and just kept on being lazy. <laughs> like, all the time, right? Yeah. Then, in the next line, he says, when they do, one may experience distress, <clears throat> depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. The good enough meditator has ordinary devotion to laziness, ordinary <coughs> devotion to inconsistency, ordinary devotion to carelessness. You don't need to try and get rid of carelessness. You don't need to get rid of doubt. I joked when we were doing backbends earlier today that Western people are lazy. Because I have had teachers uh, say this to me. All Western students are just lazy. You know? And so the, the, the self-judgment mind hears that we're lazy, and then we judge ourselves for being lazy, which then leads to more laziness as a reaction. It's this kind of interesting superego thing that goes on. Um, there must be another way to meet these kind of symptoms. And this is what Patanjali is about to shed light on. But he says, first of all, notice how those symptoms give rise to other symptoms. So they give rise to distress, uh, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. <coughs> one can subdue these distractions by working with any one of the following principles of practice. Do you notice how, as the arc of this chapter goes on, it's becoming extremely practical? Saying, okay, here, we, we've talked about the chittavrittis, we've labeled them, we've put them in charts, and now here's what you do when these distractions show up. <clears throat> so the first thing he seems to be saying is start exactly where you are. So these hindrances or these obstacles or disturbances are not something to get rid of. They're actually the path of your practice. So if laziness is showing up, then laziness is now included in your practice. And the first way he wants you to meet them is with friendliness. <coughs> so when laziness shows up, we say, hi, friend. It hasn't been such a long time. <laughs> it's good to see you. And you become a kind of host to laziness. Actually, laziness is not such a problem when you give it some space. Inconsistency is not such a problem when you don't judge yourself for being inconsistent. So the first thing we do is friendliness, Maitri. For those of you that study in other Buddhist traditions, the Pali version of Maitri is metta. Um, 
My friend Trudy Goodman always says, this whole practice is just metifying the hindrances to death. (laughs) (laughs) Kindness or friendliness is the new cool. So if you want to be cool, you just be friendly. It is such a hard path, (laughs) really. So can you imagine when your particular addictions arise, when your habits arise, maybe some of them are not even on the list. They're so unique or idiosyncratic and you're so special for having them. But still, when they show up as distractions to stillness, you meet them with friendliness. So let's take friendliness and think about friendliness as being applied to sickness, apathy, doubt, carelessness, laziness, hedonism, confusion, lack of progress, and so on. Is it possible to meet the distractedness with friendliness? Friendliness. Usually the attitude we have is wanting to get rid of the distraction. Does anybody want to respond or comment on how this resonates or syncs up or not with your own experience? I mean, what do you do when laziness shows up a lot or carelessness or so on? Is friendliness possible? What does that mean? It's a good theory. I feel like that practice has changed my whole life, but the the hindrance of moving into that practice was a lot of fear. Because there would be like some other voice saying, if you're lazy, you're going to be like so lazy that, you know this is going to happen, whatever the story was. Yeah. So then it would, it would like almost invite the non-friendly person yeah. back into yeah. So if laziness shows up, how can you take care of your laziness? If you're just trying to get rid of it, then it's going to sneak in in other more monstrous ways. So how do you let laziness be around and take care of it? Maybe for some people, they need to meditate at noon to let laziness be around in the morning. Maybe they can't meditate without a cappuccino. Okay, that's my story, but maybe some... <laughs> um, But in a way, laziness is natural. It's okay, you can be lazy. So is there some place in your week where you can be lazy? Actually, I would say that many of you need to be more lazy. Actually, we need a little more laziness. Um, And so to have room for laziness, and then it's taken care of. And if you take care of your laziness, then it makes room so you can practice without it as opposed to trying to overcome your laziness kind of heroically someone else I guess for me what resonates more is apathy 
So Apathy. In, uh -huh. in my mind, I'm thinking it's funny that I'm lying in my bed and I don't want to get out of bed um, to meditate. And so I'll just be friendly to meditating in my bed as I fall asleep again. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes we actually have to, you know, spend that time in the bed and then realize we need some other kinds of support so we can practice. Like maybe for the first little while of practice, it's hard to practice without other people. So one of the things that I do sometimes when I am practicing, I tend to practice a lot by myself. And once in a while, practicing by myself, I can get a little lazy about practice because there's no one else around. And uh, so one of the things that I like to do is I like to practice at times when I know other people are practicing. So I have some friends who practice in another city and I know what time they practice. So I like to practice at that time. And I like to imagine them practicing at that time. When we were on the New Year's retreat, one of the things I thought a lot about on that retreat was the four or five other groups I knew in Ontario who were also doing New Year's retreats and how nice it was to feel that we were all sitting together in the snow on that retreat. It wasn't just us. And you can take this much further. I mean, you can even contemplate how when you're breathing, you're alone and you're breathing and maybe you're boxed in but actually, you can think about how, while you're breathing, simultaneously, the birds outside are breathing. And every living creature is breathing. Trees are breathing. Fish are breathing. Simultaneously, while you're breathing. And there are all kinds of tricks we can do with our imagination to get out of ourselves so that we can relax and just be breathing. Um, so sometimes community is a nice way of working with laziness. And the community doesn't even have to be human. <coughs> yeah. um, I recently uh, kind of looked at this situation and I realized that for me, laziness was actually a, an obstacle to uh, realizing some part of myself. I was actually stopping myself from looking at something that was incredibly important. So it, I, wow. For instance, set aside my practice for Sunday, but it took me like four hours to do it. Yeah. And then when I finally sat down and, and at the end of my practice, I realized that I was just delaying a whole mechanism for sitting down and looking at something that was uh, incredibly distressing. Yeah. So it was not necessarily a bad thing that I was lazy. It just slowed down the process for me, you know, mm -hmm. for me to look at yeah. the situation more clearly. That's a good example. So I just want to push this a little further and remind you also that this teaching is happening in a chapter that is also challenging our notions of what we think of as things. So even laziness. Laziness is just a word. It's just a word, and it's not a thing. And as you meditate and you really open up to the truth of impermanence, you see that part of what we're doing when we're practicing is letting things change. And 
laziness when we categorize it as laziness and the category is not light then the label actually becomes tight around the laziness and then we create all kinds of concepts about ourselves being lazy and we split off from the laziness and we objectify it and we turn it into a thing which then creates a subject which is now lazy but actually the subject was just a fanciful construction in that moment as a split that happened but if you actually become one with laziness it's not experienced as laziness it's experienced as another passing phenomenon so one of the reasons for generating friendliness or even in Chip's translation he says radiating friendliness towards laziness as an example is so that we can make room for what we're experiencing to change and if you think about that as a relational practice or as a daily practice even making room for other people to change or how to relate to other people making room for them to change their minds also isn't that the worst part about friendship is that your friends change their minds and everything you think that they are can change and then they're not who you need them to be mm-hmm. and then you have to change and then they have to change because you've changed in relationship to their change and that's all you've got so that who you are is not a separate thing from who they are in other words monica is something that happens between us monica is not a fixed thing over there so likewise the same is true with any of these disturbances is that they are not what you are nobody is always depressed nobody is schizophrenic nobody is always schizophrenic nobody is always manic imagine if somebody was always manic maybe you think you know somebody who's always <laughs> manic but that's as likely as knowing someone who always loses their purse if somebody always lost their purse they would never have a purse to lose so we categorize people in the same way that we fixate on our own symptoms and um one of the big difference between western psychology of course and meditation practice is this very point that actually we can give attention to something without really being interested in the content of what we're experiencing so actually when laziness shows up we don't really care why we're lazy and we don't really analyze why we're crazy i mean lazy <laughs> <laughs> or deluded or confused we just open up and when we open up with breathing to presence what's showing up even when it's so painful then it changes and we change and then it moves on and becomes something else and we don't fix it mentally because then it turns it into an object and turns it into a thing nowadays no matter what stream you go into you 
you realize, even in academic circles, that the bottom of every, you know, I don't know, maybe like before the bottom of everything was like gender. Or in physics, it's like atoms. But now we know that like an atom is not the bottom of everything. And now it's strings. And now they're taking them and they're spinning them around in Switzerland under a mountain really fast and banging them into each other. Uh, some people think it's to create the Big Bang. Again, I don't know what they're doing, really. But the point of what they're doing is also a fantasy that we all have to get to the very bottom building blocks of something, to think that there is something there that is eternal and essential and a substance that goes on in time, which is just another fantasy for God. But actually, when you really give attention to how life happens, it only happens as change, moment to moment. And so that's a whole other way of using friendliness, is it softens the mind's tendency to fix something into a thing, even a description of an emotion or an obstacle. Does this make sense? Last week, Michael, when you talked about the blade of grass, I remember that the first thing that came to mind for me was hindrances. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also what once Rashi said, uh, how to enter the practice, enter there, enter here. Yeah. Like every moment is a chance to enter. Yeah. And as well, the hindrances, they're like a blade of grass that can yeah. be a temple. Yeah. If you make room for them. Depending on your attention, the kind of intention or attention you give to something. Mm -hmm. In Sanskrit, the word is kshana, which means moment. We don't have a word in English like that, but it's that life happens as kshanas, as like, that's it, and it's gone. And in certain conditions, our old wounds may come back in certain moments. And we feel them, and then they're gone again. But they don't sit like in some place, actually. They just arise in matrices of conditions. But they don't exist in us. And uh, the nice thing about the blade of grass image is that it's a sanctuary because of the way you're giving it attention. And so friendliness is an attitude that we give uh, to develop mindfulness. So we can see things showing up in conditions which are built on other conditions all the way down. Roberto Colasso says, if you go so far down, all that's left are butterflies. You can't get to the bottom. It also makes me think of every time we talk about the roof of the palate and how you release it with a gentle smile. Mm-hmm. And that dome that's created, that yeah. space, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, space. <coughs> Any other comments?
comments or questions? Next week we'll do the rest of the list. But I think friendliness is just enough homework for one week. (laughs) (laughs) That might really screw up your persona. When loneliness, uh, when sadness, um, when jealousy, um, fear, uh, betrayal, any of these really strong emotions come up for you. Um, How to find friendliness? I have a friend who did a really stupid thing. And uh, I've been kind of obsessed about it this week. And uh, I had some hurt feelings around it. And I noticed in my mind that uh, all the time what I was doing was fixing her and turning her into a really good character in a perfect psychoanalytic theory that I had about her character. And actually, all of that focusing on her uh, was really convenient because then I actually didn't really have to feel anything, you know. And uh, then I realized that mostly I do that all day and with almost everyone, really. But I just hide it really well, so I come across as friendly. But actually, uh, to see in our own mind how constantly we're framing people in these ridiculous cells uh, that really have no basis in reality because they're not flexible. And um, it's so easy. This is, this is why war is so easy because we get to create enemies and then we get to be subjects. Yeah. I think that's what's very tricky about friendliness too because there's so much pressure for you to be perceived as friendly like socially, like, you know, by and large, friendly is seen as a good thing. So when you encounter a situation where someone scares you and your own response is, is violent hatred or uh-huh. aversion. Yeah. Um, for a lot of... It's still really hard not to immediately think the friendliness has to be applied to the object outside of you. Right. You Extroverted know, and that, friendliness. Yeah and, that, yeah, and that can get really spin you off yeah. into a whole other stuff. Because, you know, you, you, you actually at that point, well, I don't find... It's that helpful to try to be friendly with the person that's just scared me. Yeah. What I really need to be friendly with is just the, no, the, the sensation of fear. Yeah. And like being friendly at that particular point, which is very interior, and it is hard because it's a part that disgusts me. Yeah. Then, you know, that's the thing that then can maybe give the space to then genuinely allow things for cha- to change yeah. in the relationship. Yeah. So the friendliness is happening first intrapsychically, not interpersonally. No. And then that gives rise to a more genuine 
love. Mm -hmm. That's not possible if we're turning them into an object. Yeah. <coughs> Good luck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sharon Old's poem about the clasp is actually really about an attitude of friendliness. If you think back at how the poem was, the perspective of the poem, she's um, making enough space in her own experience to look really honestly at the way she grabbed her kid. And um, even for a woman, to be able to articulate that is really quite amazing. And um, I think that uh, most of us, if something like that had happened and we were to reflect on it, it would there would be a lot of layers maybe of shame or denial or deflection or embarrassment or whatever, guilt, mm -hmm. guilt before we could actually <coughs> talk about the source of love mm -hmm. as including the grab and the crush. Um, which she's not condoning either. Yeah. So, can you bring this kind of attitude um, to the distractions that arise in your life that keep you from stillness? If we had a lot of time tonight, maybe we would even do a little partner exercise where you could share with somebody maybe two or three of your favorite ways of avoiding stillness during the day. Not including Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so, something to reflect on. Let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Thank you.